Okay, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be reading this morning uh, verses 1 to 16. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse one, there the word of Christ says this, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask today, Lord, that the understanding, Lord, the wisdom that we need, Lord, that is essential for our spiritual life. Lord, that you would impart this to us. Lord, help us to see that we need to know what your word teaches, Lord, on all things, so that we might do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that you would establish our church, Lord, our homes in proper order, Lord, with proper uh, roles of authority, Lord, with proper submission, Lord, that everything may be conducted with decency, Lord, with order, Lord, without chaos and confusion. Lord, that our homes and our church may be places, Lord, that are filled with peace, Lord, with righteousness, with truth, and Lord, ultimately with salvation. Lord, help us to see that, Lord, when we follow your commandment, it always leads to our blessing. And Lord, it never leads to our evil. So, Lord, may we believe your word above all things, and Lord, especially above the ideas and philosophies of this present world. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week that is addressing proper order within the context of the church uh, and the home. And that is also dealing with this symbol of the head covering. Now, we remember in chapters 11 to 14 of 1 Corinthians the apostle is addressing issues related to the public worship. When the church gathers together, how are they to conduct themselves so that everything takes place in an orderly, proper fashion that brings glory and honor to God? And he begins this passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
by asserting that these issues are issues that are of extreme importance because we are dealing here with the imitation of the apostle and ultimately the imitation of Christ. So we are talking about the Christian life here, living the life of Christ, whether that be in our private life, in our home, in our church, in society, wherever we find ourselves, whatever situation we face, the goal for every Christian, every child of God should be to imitate Christ, that the life of Christ would be lived within us and without to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh. We are to adopt as our own mind the very mind of Christ, and we are to live in our own life the very life of Christ. And these are not secondary matters. These are not tertiary matters. These are matters related to the imitation of Christ. So we're dealing with the Christian life here. We're addressing this. So our goal should always be to know what is the mind of Christ and to take up as our own the life of Christ in all that we do. Also, we remember in verse two, he's talking about traditions, traditions that have been handed down to the church by the holy apostle. The apostle received these traditions from Jesus Christ And then what he received from Christ, he then delivered them faithfully, handed them down to the church so that they also might walk in a way that is pleasing to God. Look at verse 23, Matthew 11, 23. He uses the same uh, terminology when talking about the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians 11, 23 says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. So I received it from the Lord. And then he says, I delivered it to you, right? This is what Christ taught me. That's the same as what we're dealing with at the beginning of chapter 11 in verse two. These are traditions that I delivered to you. The apostle delivered them to the church, right? When a tradition is established by Jesus Christ, and brought into the church through the apostle, then it is obligatory. It is obligatory for the church to receive it and to receive that tradition as a part of the practice, the manners of the church. It's not optional. It's not something we can take or leave. We must receive the traditions from Jesus Christ and incorporate them into our own practice as a church. This is what the apostle taught, not only here, but in other places as well. Notice 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, right? What he's teaching to the church in Corinth is what he's teaching to all the churches as well, right? This was his custom, what he expected in all the churches. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17 says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And so I direct all the churches. So what he teaches the Corinthians in chapter 7 concerning marriage and how they are to view this and what they are to do in relation to marriage, he says, this is not just something I'm teaching to you. I'm teaching this to all the churches. This is what I expect of all the churches. And that is also what he says in verse 16. He says, the other churches do not have the practice of being contentious, right? I'm not contentious, the apostle, nor are the churches of God 
contentious against the word of God. And this is why these issues cannot be merely cultural issues. Something that Jesus Christ and the apostle expected only for the Christians living in Corinth in the first century. Or a practice that's only for Christians living in the ancient world, but not for Christians who are living in modern America. Right? Whenever the passage is teaching, it has only one meaning. And that meaning is applicable to all Christians in all ages, regardless of culture. Right? And that should be the goal of us every time we open the Bible is to understand the true interpretation, the one true meaning of the passage, and then how it is that it applies so that we can do what is pleasing to God. And as we will see as we go through this passage, the apostles argument that men should pray and prophesy with their head uncovered, right? Because it's two sided. Men should not have their head covered. And then he says the women should have their head covered, right? The basis for this is not the customs of Corinth in the first century, but rather it is creation. He goes back to creation. So whatever he is teaching supersedes culture because it is rooted in the very created order that God has established. So we're dealing with issues then related to public worship and the distinction between men and women, how men are to behave and dress in the assembly and how women are to behave and dress in the assembly based upon the created order. So that's what we're dealing with. So we're going to go today. Verse three. We're just going to deal with verse three today because it is foundational right this is the basis of the argument that he's making it all hinges on verse 3 in what we know and understand concerning verse 3 so let's look at first corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 okay he says i want you to understand that christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and god is the head of christ Again, I want you to understand Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Here, the apostle says, I want you to understand. So what he's giving us here is understanding. He's giving to us teaching. This is not a matter of opinion. This is not his Preference. It's not the preference of the apostles. It's not the consensus view of a survey that he conducted among the churches. He's dealing with issues of understanding that come from God and through the holy apostles. He's giving to us a declaration from the Lord. This is God's wisdom on this matter that has come down from above and has been delivered to us through the word of God. So we must receive it as an authoritative word from the Lord. This is what the Bible is giving to us. The Bible gives us understanding so that we who are simple, we who are foolish in our natural state, so that we might come to the understanding, the knowledge, the wisdom of God, so that we can judge and order ourselves in a way that is proper and fitting before God. Right? We can't do this naturally because naturally we have no wisdom. We have no understanding. We have no knowledge. Right? All men are liars and all men are foolish in their own natural state. But when we go to the word of God, we are receiving wisdom from God. 
understanding from God so that we know how to think and we know how to live in the various issues that we face throughout this life. To see that this is indeed the case. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We could read the whole chapter because this is what the whole chapter is teaching. But we'll read specifically verses 97 through 104. 97 through 104. Psalm 119, which is extolling to us the virtues, the goodness of the word of Christ. Right? Of the word of God. Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So there, the word of God is dealing with, right? He says, it makes me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than my teachers. I understand more than the aged. Wisdom, insight, understanding, right? Through your precepts, I get understanding, Isn't that what the apostle is teaching here when he says, I want you to understand something. You need to get this insight, this wisdom, so that you can do those things that are pleasing to God. While we're in Psalm 119, also look at verse 30. Says the unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. The unfolding of the word of God gives light. It gives light so that we know and understand what is the will of God, right? And it makes those who are simple, right, who are fools, it gives them wisdom and understanding so that they can know and do the will of God. Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. Notice in verse 12. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Right? There is a way that seems right to a man. It appears right to him. It seems wise to him. It seems like it's a good idea. This is good understanding. But if it originates from man, then what will it ultimately end in? It'll end in death and destruction. It leads to death because it's contrary to God. Also, chapter 16 of Proverbs, verse 25. Again, it says, it repeats it. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Right? It ends in death if we do not receive the wisdom, the understanding that comes from the word of God. Also, James chapter 3 James chapter 3, verse 13. James 3, 13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Where, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile thing, every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there, there is a wisdom from above and there is a wisdom from below. The wisdom from below is earthly, natural, demonic. But the wisdom from above comes from God. It's pure, peace, peaceful, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. And it leads to a harvest of righteousness. Right. So which one do we want? Do we want earthly understanding or do we want heavenly understanding? Well, what is he dealing with here? He's giving to us heavenly wisdom, right? I want you to understand these things. That's what the apostle is saying. So this is what is at stake. The apostle is unfolding for us the very wisdom of God. There's something that we need to know from God. And he's declaring this understanding to us, this truth to us for our good, for our benefit, for our wisdom and understanding in this present life, right? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When we receive the wisdom of God, the understanding that comes from the word of God, then it makes us wise. It gives us the wisdom of God. And we need that. We need the wisdom of God, the understanding of God. Otherwise, how are we going to live a godly life? How are we going to be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ if we don't have the wisdom that comes from God? How are we going to live a life pleasing to God if we're depending upon our own reason and understanding? It'll never happen. But when we submit ourselves, humble ourselves under the hand of God, under the word of Christ, when we receive his wisdom and understanding as our own, then we will be able to be reconciled to God and live a life that is pleasing to him. So we must receive this understanding that the apostle is teaching. We cannot reject it. And anyone who contradicts it, who undermines this teaching, is undermining God Almighty. He is himself opposing the Lord. And we cannot oppose God. Right. That is a battle we're never going to win. We will always be losers in a war against God and against his holy word, though men may blaspheme it right now and they may escape a day or two or even for many years throughout their life. There may not be some immediate calamity that befalls them. But ultimately, in the end, if we oppose God and we oppose his word, what's going to happen to us? We're going to be destroyed. We will be destroyed. The prophet who has a dream may report his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word truthfully. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is my word not like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? Jeremiah 23, 28 and 29. So again, we must keep these things in mind for what the apostle teaches his wisdom is not coming from himself, but coming from God. However, the wisdom he's teaching is not popular today. It is actually very unpopular. There will be many people who, if we just read this verse, if you read this verse 
in New York, if you went to some Ivy League institution and read this, or if they published this verse in the New York Times or the Washington uh, Post, the readers would be outraged. They would be outraged. They would boycott. They would riot and protest and want to burn the whole city down. Right? If we were trying to teach and hold to what the apostle is saying here. So this is not going to be popular. We are not going to win a popularity contest by preaching and teaching these truths. Right? We won't win a popularity contest in this present corrupt generation. However, in the end, we will win. Right? We will be found to be the winners because what we are preaching and teaching, while it is unpopular today, it is out of favor in our own present generation. It's not out of favor with heaven. It is very, very popular teaching with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, with the heavenly angels, and with the souls of the righteous made perfect. What the apostle is teaching, they love it. They love it and they want to hear it. And so, do we want to stand with them or do we want to stand with the wicked of our own present day? The world will reject us, but God and his righteous ones, they will receive us. That's who we want to stand with. We want to be counted among them. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Verse 8. Luke 12, 8. Says, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So, if we confess Christ before men, he will confess us before his holy angels. But if we deny Christ before men, he will deny us before his angels. And what is it to confess Christ other than to proclaim his word, to confess the very word of Christ? So that's, again, what we're dealing with here. The apostle is giving wisdom. Now, in the opening of what he's teaching, this is the third time. He is brought to bear the word of God. Imitation of Christ, tradition that has been delivered to the church by the apostle from Christ. And then here we're dealing with understanding. So he's making it very clear that what we're talking about here, these are issues of truth, issues of wisdom, issues of understanding, issues related to the Christian life. This is the way that we have to receive these things. It is essential for us to understand. I want you to understand something. That's what the apostle is saying. So now the question is, what does he want us to understand? What do we need to understand from the apostle? Notice what he says. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. It is important that we understand what he's talking about. Right When the apostle says head... Right. That's the word he's using here. Christ is the head of man. The man is the head of a woman. God is the head of Christ. He means it in the sense of authority. 
right? That's what he's talking about here. He's going to use this word head in multiple ways throughout this passage. He's going to sometimes when he uses it, he's referring to authority. At other times when he's using it, he's talking about the literal head that is on your body. So in some cases, he's dealing with the authoritative head. And in other cases, he's dealing with the actual literal head that a person finds on their body. In verse three, he's referring to authority. The head or the authority over a man is Christ. The head or the authority over a woman is the man. The head or the authority over Christ is God. Head in this context means authority, right? It does not mean source. Now, I say that because some modern liberal commentaries will say, the false teacher will say, that head doesn't mean authority. Head means source, so that that liberal commentator, who's an unbeliever, can undermine the authority of the Word of God and ultimately the authority of men over women because this is very distasteful to liberal, unbelieving scholars. But this is a gross misinterpretation and a gross mistranslation of the word. Head obviously means authority, right? That's what we are talking about here. We're talking about roles of authority within the church and within the home, right? God is a God of authority and God has established an order in this present world, a structure of authority that should be adhered to within the home and within the church and even within society. The church is a setting of authority. The greatest authority in this world is present with us every single time we meet. Every time we open up the word of God, we are consulting the highest authority in this present world. So the church is meeting in a context of authority. Well, when there is authority, there has to be some structure. There has to be order. Otherwise, it's going to be chaos. Otherwise, if everyone is saying something and everyone thinks that they all have the right to speak up whenever they want and say whatever they want, then it's all going to be confusion, chaos, and it's going to lead to disorder, jealousy, ambition. It's not going to be good for anyone. So when the church meets, there is authority. Therefore, God has established structures of authority, order within the church, so that it's not a free-for-all that's going to lead to confusion and chaos. The same with the home. Doesn't there have to be a head, a chief, right? There has to be an ultimate authority in the house, in the home, whenever decisions are being made. Someone has to be the ultimate authority. Someone has to have the final say. Someone has to be in charge. And here in the home, this is the man, not the woman. And in the church, it is the men and not the women. That's what he's teaching in this passage. The home is to be led by the man, by the husband, by the father. The church is to be led by men especially by the elders of the church who are only to come from the men and not the women. So we're talking about issues of authority and issues of order. Now, one might say, 
well, isn't God the ultimate authority over all things? Right. There's only one authority. God is the ultimate authority over all things, including women. So why is he saying that the head of the woman is the man? Isn't that elevating a man to the position or to the place that only God can occupy? And yes, it is true that God is the ultimate authority over all things. God is the ultimate authority over all men. And God is the ultimate authority over all women. He's the ultimate authority over all believers and over all unbelievers. All authority ultimately comes from God. Romans chapter 13. Right. All authority comes from God. But that that is true does not negate or undermine or contradict what the apostle is teaching in our passage. Romans 13 verse 1. Here, he's talking about a different context. He's not talking about the home or the church. He's talking about society. Verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So there he says, there is no authority except from God. All authority ultimately originates with God. All authority in heaven and on earth has as its fount, as its source, ultimately the authority of God. However, God exercises his authority. He manifests his authority in this present world through intermediaries, through mediators that dispense his authority in this present age. That's what Romans chapter 13 is teaching concerning the institution of ruling authorities or of the government. Yes, all authority belongs with God, but God exercises, he delegates a portion of this authority in this world to the ruling authorities, and God commissions them to be the ones in this world who reward those who do good and who punish those who do bad. God doesn't do it directly. He can, and there are times when God does it directly, but most of the time God does it indirectly. He does it through a mediator. He does it through the ruling authorities. And this is the way that day in and day out, God establishes his authority in society through the ruling authorities who reward good behavior and who punish those who do evil. And resisting the authority is to resist God, is what he says. When the authority is rightfully exercising his authority as defined and given to him by God, then if we resist that authority, we are ultimately resisting the establisher of that ordinance or that institution who is God himself. That's what we're talking about in chapter 11, verse 3. Just as God has ordained positions of authority in society through the government, through those who are ruling God has also ordained roles or positions of authority within the home and within the church. And that's what we're talking about in chapter 11. He's talking about the relationship between the man and the woman and Christ and God the Father. So notice first chapter 11, verse 3. What is the first structure or role of authority that is established? First, Christ is the head of every man. Here, when he says man, he doesn't mean 
mankind, meaning all men and women. Here he's talking specifically about males, that those men in contrast to women. So in terms of the immediate authority to every man, it is Jesus Christ. And the man is to exercise his authority over the woman, not independently of Christ, but in subjection and submission to his head, who is Jesus Christ. Meaning the man is to devote himself to the word of Christ so that he might know and understand the will of his authority, of his head, who is Jesus Christ, so that he can make sure that he himself is obeying his authority, but also that he is leading his household, that he is leading his wife, that he is leading his children, not contrary to the will of his head, but in subjection as well to Jesus Christ. This is the pattern God established at creation. He created the man, he gave the man his word, and then he expected the man to communicate that word to the woman so that she also would come under the will of God. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So again, this structure of authority is established and rooted in creation and also in creation before sin entered the world. So it's good. It's not evil. It's not sinful. It is good. It is wholesome. It is righteous. And it's only going to lead to good. And when we reject this, it leads to evil. Part of the fall was a rejection of this pattern established by God. Because the man was not doing his duty and the woman was not submitting to the man, but was acting independently of him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Then the the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. And for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there we see that God created the man. God put him in the garden. God gave him the commandments all before he created the woman. Then he created the woman. And though it doesn't say it explicitly here, what was the expectation, right? What is implied? That the commandment Adam received from God, he was to faithfully communicate and teach that commandment to his wife, to the woman, so that she also would know the will of Christ. He had the word of Christ given to him. The head of the man is Christ. Then he was to take the word of Christ given to him and was to teach that word to his wife. And God did it this way intentionally because he's establishing here an order, a structure, a role of authority that will be abiding throughout all generations within the home. That Christ is the head of the man and the man is the head of a woman. So the man was expected to know and understand the commandments. And then he was expected to faithfully communicate and teach that commandment to his wife and then to protect her from anyone who might seek to subvert this commandment of Christ. Right? Isn't that obvious from the passage here? He was to teach her and to protect her from anyone who might come and subvert those things because she was given to him. He is to care for her, provide for her. So if someone is coming, trying to deceive her, trying to lead her astray from pure, simple devotion to Christ, then what is the man's responsibility? To take it up and to fight against anyone who would seek to lead his wife astray. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? When the woman is being deceived, the man does not exercise his authority over her, but lets her act outside of his authority. Right? And which is what ultimately led to the fall of mankind. So Christ is the head of every man. It is then the responsibility of every man to submit to his head, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. So no man has ultimate unrestricted authority in the home over the woman, right? Man's authority is itself to be subjected to the authority of Christ for Christ is the immediate head or the immediate authority over every man. Notice next. Secondly, the man is the head of a woman. Just as Christ is the authority over the man, so the man is the immediate authority over the woman. Again, not the ultimate authority, for the man is not to act independently of the authority of Jesus Christ. 
The man is not to expect of his wife that she do those things that are contrary to the will of God. He is to subject himself to the will of Christ, but then he is to teach his wife and expect her to subject herself to his will, to what he commands, to what he is teaching her and what he issues for her to do. So insofar as the man is exercising his authority in a legitimate way, then what does the Bible expect of the woman? That she would submit and that she would submit not with grumbling, not with complaining, not as a nag, but that she would submit with joy, with happiness in a humble and a reverent manner. This is how holy women, this is how Christian women should behave toward their husbands, not kicking and screaming. But if the husband is expecting that which is good and righteous and true, she should with reverence and fear and joy gladly submit to her husband. Ephesians chapter 5. The desire to kick against that does not come from the Spirit of Christ. And if it's not from the Spirit of Christ, then it must be coming from the devil, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is to subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your own, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Then he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So there, the wives subject themselves to their husband, to her husband, right? She does and follows his lead, even as she would follow Christ. As the church is to submit to Christ, so the wife is to submit to the husband. And the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, does Christ teach us? Does he instruct us? Does he command us? Does he lead us in truth and righteousness? Of course he does. So what should husbands do to their wives? They should lead them in truth and righteousness and into those things that are good. And then the wife should subject herself to those things. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, 
so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not uh, be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So there again, he's teaching the same thing. The wives to be submissive to their husbands, and the husbands to love their wives, to live with the wife in an understanding way, right? Knowing that she is the weaker vessel, and that he needs to treat her in the proper way. This is what God expects of both the men and the women. But here again, the man is the one who has authority over the woman. That's what the apostles teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that's what Peter's teaching in 1 Peter chapter 3. That Sarah called Abraham her Lord. That she obeyed him in what he told her, in what he commanded, what he expected that was good and righteous in the sight of God. And if you go back and read that passage in Genesis 18 and 19, when Sarah called Abraham her Lord, she wasn't doing it by way of lip service. She wasn't doing it to make a show. Where did she call him her Lord? It says in her heart. She did it internally. She didn't do it out audibly, though she would have done it in that way as well, but she was doing it internally in her heart, showing that this was her disposition. This was the way on the inside she behaved in the respect that she had for her husband, for her husband. So the man here is to be the authority over the woman. The man is to lead the woman into the will of Christ, not contrary to the will of Christ, but consistent with the will of Christ. The man should expect the woman to conduct herself in a way that is consistent with the biblical teachings of a godly wife. That she would be quiet, humble, submissive, pure, respectful, gentle. Right? For a man to expect his wife to care for the children, right? to keep house, to be hardworking in the home, to avoid idleness, to not go from house to house as a busybody, to not squander the finances or the time on frivolous things. Right? This is not tyranny. For a man to expect that, this is freedom. This is freedom because this is what is consistent with the Word of God. A man who expects these things from his wife is not a tyrant because these are the qualities that the Bible describes for a godly woman. So he should be teaching his wife these things and expecting her to live in accordance with these qualities. And when the wife is taught those things, she should gladly submit, seeing that this is how the holy women of old, this is how they adorn themselves. And don't we want to be like Sarah? 
Don't we want to be like Rebecca and Leah and Rachel and Abigail and Hannah and those righteous saints that are found all throughout the Bible? These are the women that we have as examples, the righteous women of the Bible, and we should want our women to be like them. So whenever the wife sees that these things are good and true, then she should joyfully, gladly submit to her husband in these kinds of things, knowing that to submit to him is to submit to who? Is to submit to God and to submit to Christ. So in the home, according to the passage, the man has authority over the woman. And if this authority is undermined, then it will lead to chaos and misery. And even unbelievers, even unbelievers know and understand that there has to be order. Even they know and understand that it is good for humanity and good for the social order for there to be proper authority in the home. Esther, Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1, these are unbelievers, Persians, idolaters. But notice that even these idolatrous people, no one understand that if there is not proper order in the home, the whole kingdom is going to fall into disarray, chaos, and disorder. Esther chapter 1, verse 10. It says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful." But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice, and were close to him, Karshina, Shathar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukim the seven princes of Persia of Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? For she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. In the presence of the king and the princess, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, and she did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ohashuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And when the king's edict, which, will make, which we, he will make uh, heard throughout all of his kingdom, great as it is, 
Then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So there the king, Ahasuerus, and his nobles, this, these princes, they knew and understood that if the conduct of the queen was allowed to go unpunished, then the other women in the kingdom would hear about it, and then they would all say, we don't have to obey our husbands either. Right? We don't have to follow them. Right? We can do whatever we want. And it's going to spread, and what's going to happen to the whole kingdom? There's going to be disorder. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be misery everywhere because there's not going to be proper authority and it's going to be a free-for-all. And they're Persians, idolaters, and they knew and understood these things. And what is happening in our own day? Isn't this what has happened as a result of the wickedness of our own generation? So they knew these things by nature, by natural law. They knew and understand that the man has to be the head, there has to be a master of the house, right? There has to be a head of the home in order for there to be proper authority and proper order in the home. And if there's not proper order in the home, then there's not going to be order in society as well. Because if the home is undermined, what happens to society? It all goes down the tube. That's what's happening today. That's what's happened in America. You attack the home and specifically the institution of marriage, the relationship of the man to the woman, you attack and you undermine that, and you can destroy the whole society. And this is what has happened in our own day. Even the Persians understood that. So how much more should we, who are Christians, who have Christian Bibles, who have the Word of God, we ought to know and understand the proper roles of men and women. The man is to exercise authority over the woman. Now for the men, this ought to cause the men to sober up, right? to be careful, to make sure that you are leading your wife into the will of Christ. Because if you're not, God's going to hold you accountable. God's going to hold you responsible. Isn't that what it says in Luke 12, 48? For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they have entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. The man has been given this mandate to lead the home, not the woman. The man has been given this role, this position, this responsibility. The man has been given authority from God in order to fulfill this mandate. So in terms of responsibility, in terms of authority, the man has been entrusted, has been given more of these things than the woman. Well, then does that not mean that men will be held to a higher standard? Does that not mean that men will be required to answer to God for how they exercised their authority, for how they led their families, for how they taught their wives, for how they taught their children? And if they don't do those things, then God's going to hold them accountable for failure to do what God told them to do. The buck stops with us, men. We are accountable for our homes, for our families, and we better take it seriously. We cannot shirk our responsibilities because we're preoccupied. Preoccupied with money, 
preoccupied with hobbies, with recreations, with all the frivolous things that people are giving themselves to in this world. We can't behave like that. God has given us a responsibility, and we are called to lead our homes, to be the authority in our home, and ultimately we exercise that authority by teaching the Bible in our homes. And if we're not doing that, we're sinning against God. We can't do that. So we have to take it seriously. And for the women, the woman is not to resist the authority of the man. If the man is exercising rightful authority, if he is expecting of you wife and of you children the will of God, then do not resist him, but do what he calls you to do and do it in a respectful in an honoring way, without talking back, without nagging, without complaining, without doing any of those things. Because if you resist the man, and if the man is exercising legitimate authority, then who are you ultimately resisting? You're resisting Christ, and Christ will hold you accountable on the day of judgment. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Matthew 10.40. So if the husband is expecting what is good, righteous, true, what is consistent with the will of God for the household, for the wife, for the children, and the wife is resisting him because she doesn't like authority, she's an anti-authoritarian, then she's resisting Christ. She's resisting God, and she will be held accountable on the day of judgment. And that goes for the children as well. So don't think you're going to escape, you children. No, it goes for everyone. This is what we need to do. Men and women alike will answer to God on the day of judgment for these things, for what he's talking about in this passage. So we cannot take these things lightly. This is the order established by God Almighty at creation. The man is the head of of a woman. Now, of course, this does not mean that men, we know, none of us have perfect wisdom, none of us have perfect knowledge, none of us are perfect bastions of truth and righteousness, right? No one believes that, right? We all know that we ourselves are fallible, that we ourselves have weakness, that we ourselves are growing in our understanding. This does not mean that men should not talk to their wives, that men should not consult their wives, that men should not seek their input or their advice when making decisions that impact the family. No one believes that, right? So if someone says that, then they are liars. No one believes that or is teaching that men should just do whatever they want without any consideration of anyone else because they're the ultimate authority and they can do whatever they want. This is not what the Bible teaches. Of course, the husband should talk to his wife. Of course he should consult her and even consult the children when they are of a certain age, when they're making decisions, when they're seeking advice, when they're trying to do what is good and right and pleasing in the will of God. And if what the wife says to the husband is consistent with the will of God, then the man should listen to her and do what she says. A couple of examples. Genesis 21. Genesis chapter 21 And verse 9. Genesis 21, verse 9. says, Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Now we know from 
uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 29, that when it says mocking there, it means it in the sense of persecution. That Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. So this isn't cute, cuddly, uh, giggling, tickling, you know, friendly banter between one brother to another. But this is a mocking that is a threatening, a threatening of the life of Isaac by Ishmael. Therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. So Sarah sees this. She sees what's taking place. She goes to Abraham. Notice that. She doesn't go around him. She doesn't circumvent him. She doesn't say, I'm going to go do what needs to be done on my own. Who does she go to? She goes to her husband because she understands and knows whose responsibility ultimately is it. Who is the head of the home? Abraham. She goes to him, but she says to him, this is what needs to happen. You need to throw Hagar and Ishmael. They need to be removed from the home. Now notice verse 12. And also, this displeased Abraham because Ishmael was his son. And he loved his son, and he didn't want to do it. Then verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So in this case, God tells Abraham, your wife is right. You need to listen to her and you need to do what she has told you to do. Because what she said was right. It was good and it was right. And then what does Abraham do? He did what his wife told him to do, right? He did it because this was the good, right thing to do. Also, Genesis 27. Genesis chapter 27. And verse 46. Genesis 27, 46. Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth, like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? So here, Rebekah, notice, she's not going around Isaac. She's not circumventing him. She's not going to Jacob directly and telling him what to do. She goes to her husband because she understands he is the head of the home. And whatever takes place needs to go through him because he's the proper authority. But what she's saying here is true and right. Her life was miserable because Esau had married unbelieving women, idolatrous women from the daughters of Heth. And who's having to deal with these women day in and day out? Rebecca is. And they're contentious. They're troublemakers. They're making her life utterly miserable because these women have been brought into the household. They're unbelievers. They're idolaters. They're contentious. They're troublemakers. And she's the one that's having to bear the brunt of this evil there in the home. And so she says, if Jacob marries one of these women, then my, my life won't even be worth living anymore. It's going to be completely miserable. And so what is the expectation? You need to send Jacob to go get a wife, not from these women, but to go back 
to the family. So what happens in verse 1, chapter 28, 1? So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your, father's, your mother's father, and from there take for yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Rebekah is the one who initiated this. She's the one that brought it to the attention of Isaac. Isaac listened to her, saw that what she said was good and right and true, and then Isaac acted upon this wisdom. Right? But ultimately, whose responsibility was it to act? It was Isaac's, but what she said was good and right, so he listened to her. One last example, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel verse uh, chapter 25, and we'll pick up in verse 23. This is when Nabal had insulted David. David had determined to go and to kill all the men of Nabal's household. And then Abigail comes and talks to David and keeps him from doing this great evil thing. And he listens to her because what she says is true, even though she's a woman. 1 Samuel 25, verse 23 says, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame, and please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as is his name, as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all of your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in bundle of the living, of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who has kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel is, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would have not been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one mel. So David received from her hand what she had brought and he said to her, go to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. So there, David was 
going to shed innocent blood and avenge himself by his own hand. And it was Abigail who kept him from doing so. And he says he listened to her. He listened to her and did what she said because what she said was good and righteous and true. So in these examples, the women are giving sound wisdom to the men and God expected the men to listen to the women, to listen to their instruction, to listen to their wisdom. Yet at the end, the decision and the action resided with the man. Right? Though the woman gave true counsel, it was still the responsibility of Abraham, the responsibility of Isaac, the responsibility of David to act upon this wisdom. And at the end of the day, the man in all of these situations still obviously had the higher position of authority. The women were still acting within the structures that had been established by God. And this is how it is to be in the home. The man is the authority over the woman. So the man is the one who has the final say. The final decision must be made by the man. And on many things the man and the woman will be in perfect harmony, right? If they're both seeking the will of God, if they're both reading the word of God, most things are going to be black and white. Most things are going to be very easily discernible and they're both going to be in complete harmony on these things. So for example, say the family is looking for a church to attend. Both the man and the woman should have the mind of Christ, concerning what is a biblical church, what they need to look for, what it is that they ought to be desiring in a church that they're going to attend. And so they visit churches and they talk about it. They debrief about it. They talk about the positives. They talk about the negatives. But ultimately, at the end of the day, whose decision is it to be made as to where they're going to attend the church? It's the responsibility of the man to make the best decision that he can make. And if, for example, the wife wants to attend a church because she really likes the music, but the teaching of that church is horrible, then the husband has to correct his wife. He has to tell her, no, we cannot go to this church, even though you like the music, even though you like the people, the teaching is no good, and therefore it's not a good church, and we cannot go to this church. And he has to put his foot down and say, we're not going as a family to go to this church. Then he has to be like Job and tell her that you are speaking as one of the foolish women speak in Job chapter 2, verse 10. But if, for example, the husband is a buffoon, and the wife is the one who's serious-minded, and he wants to attend a church because it has no standards. You can come and go as you please. There's going to be no accountability because he really likes to go golfing on Sunday or he really likes to go fishing on Sunday. He really likes to do whatever he wants to do and he wants to have a come and go attitude toward the church. And I know that this church, this mega church, they're not going to hold me accountable. There'll be no responsibility there. So I'll go there and everything will be good and great and I can do whatever I want. But the wife she knows that it's a worthless church, then she has to resist her husband. She has to say, no, well, I can't go to this church. They're not teaching the Bible. This church is worthless. And at that point, she has to be like Abigail. Abigail did not submit to Nabal in this issue of offending David because it was wrong. It was evil. She went around him, right? She undermined him, circumvented what he wanted to do because what he wanted was evil and what she wanted was righteous. 
she opposed the sinful actions of her husband, Nabal. And in that, she did not sin against God. Obviously, from the passage we read, does it portray Abigail as a sinner? Does it portray her as an unsubmissive woman? No, absolutely not. How could she submit to this evil man and what he was expecting of her? He was, she didn't do it in that issue because what he wanted was evil. And this is the same way it is with the wife. If what the husband expects is contrary to the will of God, then she cannot submit. Because ultimately, Christ and God are greater than the husband. So if the husband tells the wife to go to that store and steal something, she has to disobey her husband. If the husband says to the wife, oh, she's, you're pregnant and, and I didn't want to have any children, so you need to go down and get an abortion, should she listen to him? Of course not. But he's her husband, right? Isn't he the authority over her? Not on that. That case, she has to disobey him because it's better to please God than to please man. We have to disobey man when they expect us to do something contrary to the word of God. But in whatever is good and lawful, then she should joyfully submit without complaining, without nagging, without kicking and screaming. And her attitude towards the man should be one of reverence, love, reverence, and respect. And the man should love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the wife should submit to her husband as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. And all of this because the man is the head of a woman. Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. Now lastly, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. God is the head of Christ. When it says God here, it means God the Father. God the Father is the authority over Jesus Christ. So the only person mentioned here who has no authority over him is God the Father. Because God the Father is the source of all authority. So then here we have four levels of authority. The Father has authority over Christ. Christ has authority over the man. The man has authority over the woman. Or to take it from the ground up, the woman is to submit to the man, the man is to submit to Christ, and Christ submits to the Father. So neither the man nor the woman has an excuse for not knowing what is expected of each one. And who is the example in both cases? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The man is to emulate Christ. Just as Christ exercises authority over the man, and how does Christ exercise his authority? Does he do it in sin? Does he expect us to do what is evil? Does he expect us to do that which is contrary to the will of his Father? Of course not. He only expects us, he only commands us to do what is good, what is righteous, and what is true. He exercises his authority over the man with wisdom and righteousness. So what should the man then do? How should he exercise his authority over the woman? The same way that Christ exercises his authority over him. And then what about the woman? She also is to emulate Christ. Because Jesus always submitted to the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus Christ submits to the will of his Father. And does he do it with grumbling? Does he do it with complaining? Does he do it as a malcontent? 
Does he do it kicking and screaming, stomping his feet? Never. He, his food was to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. He did it with joy. He did it with fear, with trembling, with joy. This is how the women are to submit to the men. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. This here expounds on this phrase, God is the head of Christ. What does he mean by this? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 explains it more fully. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he who has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. That's what he means when he says God is the head of Christ. God the Father is putting everything in subjection to Christ. And when God the Father puts all things in subjection to Christ, then Christ will hand the kingdom over to the Father. He will put all things under him, and then Christ himself will be under the Father so that there is God who is all in all. Isn't it obvious that the one who subjects all things to Christ is accepted, that he himself will not be subjected to Christ? So the Father is not subjected to Christ. Christ is subjected to the Father, and then the Father puts everything under the Son. So, no one should neglect the position of authority God has granted in this present life. No one should neglect or reject what the apostle is teaching here. No man should neglect or reject what the apostle is teaching, as many men are prone to do, because many men are preoccupied with worthless things. Or many men, because they don't want to upset their wives, and they want to keep everything happy in the home, they're never going to oppose and they're never going to say anything to their wife. Well, we can't do that. Because here, the Bible expects the man to be the authority in the home. Also, no one should chafe under authority. No one should kick and scream against proper authority, as many women are prone to do. Because they despise authority. They despise the authority of their husbands and they think that they are wise enough and that they are tough enough to act independently of his oversight. This is arrogance. This is pride. It's contrary to what the Bible says, which teaches that the woman is the weaker vessel. This is why she needs a head. This is why she needs an authority in this life. 
In both cases, when we neglect and reject the proper structure of authority established by God. God over Christ, Christ over the man, the man over the woman. If we reject this structure, it is a sin against God, and it will ultimately lead to death and to destruction. Remember what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, when he describes the unrighteous who are kept under punishment until the day of judgment, he says that these unrighteous people are especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt passions and they despise authority. Unrighteous people despise authority because who do they ultimately despise? They despise God. We cannot despise the authority of God nor can we despise the institutions, the structures of authority that God has established. If we despise these things, it will lead to chaos, to misery, to sin, and ultimately to destruction. But if we adhere to them, it will result in a well-ordered home, in a well-ordered church, filled with peace, with righteousness, with salvation, the blessing of God will be there upon that home. Do we want our homes, do we want our church to be filled with strife? Do we want it to be filled with contention? Do we want it to be filled with chaos? Or do we want it to be filled with peace and righteousness and salvation? Well, then we need to follow the pattern established by God. Now, this again is the foundational verse. Everything flows out of this. And this is why we spent so much time explaining what this means so that we can understand it, so that we can do the will of God. For it is from this understanding, the proper structure of authority, that provides the basis or the rationale for why it is that a man should not pray or prophesy with his head covered, and why it is that a woman should not pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. And that's what we'll turn to next week as he'll begin to explain why this is the case. But let's this time go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that, Lord, in this present world, though it is in rebellion, Lord, though there is much sin, much chaos, Lord, much confusion and misery, Lord, it is not completely void of any order, Lord, of any authority, but Lord, there is a remnant of these things even in this present sinful world. Lord, you have established the world upon your authority. Lord, all things come from you. There is no authority except from God. And Lord, we know and we understand that. And Lord, one of the, the ways, the chief way, that you establish authority, that you establish order, peace, Lord, within society, within the home, within the church, Lord, is through the proper roles of the man and of the woman. Lord, we pray that you would give to our men conviction, Lord, that they would be strong and that they would be courageous, Lord, that they would act like men. Lord, when so many men today have been completely emasculated, Lord, they are passive. They are weak. They don't take the things of God seriously. They're not serious about knowing your will, about studying the word of God, about being involved and faithful to the church.
Lord, all they care about is money, pleasure, their hobbies, their activities. Lord, this is what is pr- the, the modern man is consumed with. But Lord, we are not modern men. Lord, we are supposed to be men of God. We are supposed to be Christian men. So Lord, how can we neglect our responsibility? Lord, how can we be weak? How can we be passive? Lord, and not, Lord, lead our families and not do what we've been called to do. So Lord, we pray that you would give us the fear of the Lord. Lord, help us to see, Lord, that all men, Lord, will be held accountable on the day of judgment for how they have led their wife and how they have led their children. That what takes place in the home, ultimately it falls upon us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be sober-minded, that we would be fearful. Lord, that we would diligently search your word. Lord, so that we might teach our wives and our children that which is good and righteous and true. Lord, as well, we pray for our women. Lord, that they would not be like the women of this world who are in rebellion against you, who are in rebellion against every institution that you have established. Lord, who hate marriage, who hate men, who hate the authority of the husband. Lord, we pray that our women would adorn themselves, Lord, with the hidden beauty that comes from a gentle and a quiet spirit. Lord, that they would show respect and reverence toward their husbands, just as Sarah did by calling her husband, or by calling Abraham her Lord. So, Lord, we pray that this desire, this temptation that rises from the world of flesh and the devil, Lord, that you would guard our women from these things. Lord, that they would see that what makes a woman beautiful in your sight, Lord, is to be a gentle, peaceful, quiet, submissive woman. Lord, one who is consumed with your word, Lord, with living a godly and a righteous life. One who spends her days raising her family, Lord, caring for her husband and her children, Lord, doing those things that are pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, we pray that you would establish our homes with this authority, Lord, with this order, Lord, that our homes might be filled with peace, Lord, with righteousness, with truth, Lord, that your blessing might be upon us, Lord, ultimately, that the gospel would flourish within our homes, Lord, for the salvation of our children, and Lord, for the good of all mankind. So, Lord, give us Christian homes, and Lord, establish us in these truths. Lord, may we not resist them, but do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.